Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Bighorn Podcast, featuring amazing people with extraordinary stories. I'm Marty Lockman and I will be hosting these accomplished people as they tell their stories in their own words. We will be talking to our guests about their lives and various twists and turns that have occurred and brought them to this point in their journey. We talk a lot that everyone has a story, and by telling their stories, we can learn, feel, and become informed in a way that gives us a greater connection to our community. This edition of the Bighorn Podcast is brought to you with support of Leeds & Son, fine jewelers who have been a part of our community for more than 70 years. Today's guest is Lee Trevino, a Hall of Fame golfer, uh, a person that's uh, been a part of our community for some period of time, and most importantly, just one of the great guys and great people that you'll ever meet. Lee, welcome. Uh, it was nice just to be here, Marty. How are you? I'm doing really good. And, and again, uh, as we've talked to others, this whole journey for you started, well, as I understand it, December 1st will be your 80th <laughs> birthday this year. Tell us about that start, even before all your accomplishments in golf. Well, I, I didn't have the, the fortunes of knowing who my dad was. I, I never had a, uh, my father had, had left uh, before I can ever remember anything. I had an older sister. And I was, we actually were born in, uh, in Rallet, Texas, which is just outside of Dallas, in kind of a sharecropper's house, four-room house, <clears throat> dirt floors, no plumbing, no electricity, and my grandfather was raising me. At the time, my grandfather was working for a f farmer there. It was Tucker Farms uh, in Raleigh, Texas. They did cotton, they did uh, uh, onions in the wintertime, and um, I was fortunate enough, my, my grandfather got a job as a grave digger in Dallas at, at, at Sparkman um, uh, Cemetery, and we moved to Dallas. And. I started, I moved to Dallas when I was about six years old. And the fortunate thing about it was that the house that we moved into was exactly the same as the house that I moved out of. Four room, uh, no electricity, uh, no plumbing. But the great thing about it is it was a golf course next door. Uh, we were out in the middle of a pasture. Uh, we had cows and there were horses and there was a big lake actually to the south of us because what a lot of people don't realize is that back in the old days when you settled in the south, that uh, the prevailing wind was always from the south. So if you found a place to build a, a home, you would actually build it on the north side of that lake simply because it was an air conditioner. Uh, the wind would come from the south, it comes over the water, and it would cool you down. I mean, in the middle of August when it was 105, you had to cover up in our house because all the... All the doors and the windows were open, uh, had screen on them. And what little education I got, I started school there when I was almost seven years old, but be, to tell you the truth, my sister was already going in Vickery, and then, and then from there, uh, my sister went on to Hillcrest, and I dropped out uh, in the eighth and uh, started working. Uh, we, we had to work. We had no income whatsoever. The most money that I ever made when I was young is I started caddying. This is why I got introduced into the game of golf and fell in love with it. I would go there. My uncle, my old, my uncle, uh, which was my my mother's brother, was actually working uh, and caddying there. 
And actually, I would go up there and pick up the balls on the range and sometimes caddy for some of the guys. Uh, there were three guys that actually kept my family alive all those years because there was no money. We were not on welfare. Uh, we got no uh, assistance from anybody. Uh, we had to make it on our own. And I love them to death. I, I, they're all gone for the except for one, uh, three Jewish guys, believe it or not, that I caddied for. And I caddied for them every Saturday and every Sunday, and they took care of my family. That's what we bought groceries with. Uh, i never forget them. The lawyer was named Henry Klepak. Uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, Tony Profano, I always thought he was Italian, but he was Jewish. They owned the, the, the fur company there. And, and then Texco's owned A&A Liquor. And that's the three guys. They always played on Saturdays and Sundays, and, and they took care of me. And that's where I got introduced into the game. And uh, I, we were not allowed to get on the golf course. I found out later that a lot of the caddies that caddied up east would actually get the golf course on Monday, and they could play and do whatever they wanted to. Uh, it didn't happen down there. Uh, we caddied, and that was it. But we had a three-hole course that we had built behind the caddy shack. And when we'd go out there and play, we made 90 cents for 18 holes. That's what the loop was, 90 cents. And we would go out there and, and, and make the loop, and then we'd come in. We had one golf club, and we would play those three holes for a nickel a hole. And uh, I, I got pretty good at it, and <laughs> I got really good at it. But I never pursued it. It, it wasn't a dream of mine. Uh, it wasn't something that I was thinking about uh, all this time, saying I was going to be a professional golfer. I mean, when I was 15 years old, Ben Hogan was the best player in the world. That was in 1954. I had no idea who Ben Hogan was. Never heard of him. Didn't, never heard of him. Sam Snead was there. Never heard of him. Had no idea who he was. Jack Nicklaus came along playing the amateur in 59 and whatever. Never heard of him. Arnold Palmer hit the deck in 1955, went in the Canadian Open. Uh, he, was, he was the man. He was the king. Never heard of him. First of all, when you don't have electricity, you don't have a radio, you don't have television, uh, there's nobody throwing a newspaper down there because we live out in the middle of a pasture with a fence around it. Uh, and so we had no idea what was going on outside the world. We lived in our own little world is what we did. We knew that we were poor, but it didn't matter simply because we were loved and, and we were having a good time. We were fine. Uh, you have to understand that, and, and I've noticed that as I've gotten older and I've traveled the world, that uh, poor people don't look at the future. They look at tomorrow. They look at today. You know, we're not talking about we're going to go on a vacation to, to the Bahamas, in other words, next October. You know, we're trying to figure out how the hell we're going to pay our car payment next month and doing, and this is how we lived. I mean, this is what it was all about. So I wasn't, I wasn't looking at golf. It didn't make anything for me. I, uh, I was making a living. I was helping the family. Uh, and then something happened. And it is so funny because people saying to me, well, you had to get started somehow. Well, I actually started and I went to work for a guy at a driving range. I was working at the Columbian Club building that new nine holes. And, I, and, and so I, I went to work at this driving range for a while. 
and this is when I started getting interested because I started hitting the ball around a little bit. But I still wasn't interested in playing uh, uh, professionally or anything like that. And so I, I was just going back and forth. I was making dollar an hour. I was driving an old beat-up 49 Ford. I was uh, 16 years old, and I was working at this club. And this is when the whole star, the story started about me playing golf and becoming who I am at the moment. I, w I didn't get in any trouble. Back in those days, you got in a little trouble. The police didn't, they didn't do anything. They just said, listen, take it easy. You know, you got to be, a, you know, whatever. And I never left the neighborhood. I was always in the same spot. So what happens to me is I have a friend of mine. We didn't have any hubcaps on our 49 Ford. So in the parking lot of the golf course, a member drove in, and he had spoke rims on his car. And the friend that I had looked at the size of the tires that he had on his car and looked at the size of the tires that I had on my car. And when I came, I got off work at 5 o'clock, came to get in my car, I had these spoke rims on my car. And I said to my buddy, I said, where did those come from? I oh, said, don't worry about it. He said, man, he said, those look good on your car, don't you? So we take off, right? <laughs> you know what's so funny is that we didn't get very far. Here comes a motorcycle policeman. <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't get very far. And this motorcycle policeman comes driving up. And he looked at me and he says, your driver's license. And I gave him the license. And he says, where'd you get those rims? I said, I have no idea. I said, you better talk to him. So he says, he tells this guy something and everything. So the policeman says, I know who those rooms belong to. And here's the address. And I'm going to be here waiting on you tomorrow if you don't deliver these rims to this address today. Man, I'm so scared because I know my mom's going to beat the hell out of me, you know, if she finds out I'm in trouble. So I ended up taking those rims off, and it was the most emotional thing I've ever done in my life is to ring that doorbell with four hubcaps. I'm holding it up like, you know, four, four pizzas. And uh, I, I told the man that I was sorry. He never said a word. He just took his hubcaps and closed the door. And I left. The next day, I ran into this policeman, and he says, I see to where you delivered those hubcaps. I said, yes, sir, I did. He said, let me ask you a question. I said, yes, sir. He said, you look like a pretty strong cat. He says, he says uh, how old are you? I said, I'm 16. He said, when are you going to be 17? And I said, in December the 1st. He said, that's three months from now. I said, yes, sir. He said, I want you to go see this guy here. So he sent me to the Marine Corps recruiter. And I went down and talked to the Marine Corps recruiter. And, and uh, I uh, took the exam and the whole thing. And I ended up in the Marine Corps. And it was the probably the only thing that saved my life. I wouldn't be here. Uh, Lee Trevino would have never won six majors and done what he's doing. And what happened to me was when I went in the Marine Corps, again, I said, like I said, I had never played that much golf before I went in. And I tell people this story, and it's hard for them to believe that I actually didn't start playing golf till I was 19. And so I, I, I go in, and uh, they wanted to know 
in other words, you can go in and have a meeting and, and say what you know what you would like to do in the Marine Corps. I told them I wanted to I wanted to be a ground guy. You know they don't have too many jobs in the Marine Corps. You know you got to fight in the Marine Corps. That's what you do. So I said, um, yeah, I want I'd like to go overseas. So they sent me to Japan. Uh, I'm Middle Camp Fuji, Third Marine Division, Ninth Marines Delta Company. Uh, I carried a 32 pound machine gun. Uh, for two years in the Pacific, and uh, I was, uh, we were in, we were in, in uh, the Philippines uh, in 1959, I remember it like yesterday, and we were in the Philippines, and we were doing some uh, amphibious landing in the Philippines, and we were running those mountains for a month, and we came back, and when I went into the rec room, I saw on the bulletin board, I looked up, and I, I saw this uh, advertising up there saying third marine division tryouts for the golf team and the guy says to me my buddy says you play golf he says you ought to try that out i said man i don't play no golf i said i've i've worked at it and stuff but i don't know how to play golf so so i went in there and uh i uh i, I went out and i i said you know i'm i'm i might try this i might try this and sure enough uh, uh i went down there and i qualified and so uh, I, I shot 77-68 at Awasi Meadows Country Club. Uh, later on that year, I won the city championship on that golf course. That's how good I got in such a short time. My secret was that I, I don't know why, but I, I'm, I'm the type of individual that's, that when I take on something, uh, it, it's the best that I can do because I'm going to give it more time than you're supposed to. I was a perfect employee. If you tell me to work eight hours, I'd work 12. Uh, you understand what I'm saying? I was the perfect guy. I would work harder when the boss left than when he was there because uh, I, I wanted him to be proud of me. And I went out for the 3rd Marine Division golf team, made it, and I played, I played for 18 months. We played all over the Pacific. I played against Orville Moody there. We couldn't beat Orville. Team-wise, we could beat the Army, but we couldn't beat Orville individually. He was, he was fantastic, this guy. And when I got out, Marty, I didn't even pursue the game. It wasn't even on the radar. I went to work at the Columbian Club to build a new nine holes. I was 21 years old. And then the guy comes over and says to me, had been watching me hit balls on the driving range. I'll never forget it. I was mowing the first fairway at the Columbian Club on a Friday at 7 o'clock at night. Now, listen to me. I got off at 4. And people say, well, what the hell were you doing mowing the fairway at 7 o'clock at night? I said, I was mowing the first hole. It's a par 5 at the Columbian Club. And the reason I was mowing it is because I was out there playing, and they didn't mow it that day. And it was a Friday, and Saturday, our members are going to come out and play, and that fairway's not mowed. Wow. So I went to the maintenance barn and hooked up a tractor and the five gang mowers, and I mowed this fairway. And as I was mowing it, a guy came up and leaned on the tire, and he says, is this what you're going to do the rest of your life? I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, you know, he said, Hardy Greenwood has been watching you hit balls for a long time. He said, he actually thinks you have a hell of a lot of potential. And he said, he would like for you to go to work for him. He has a driving range and a par three course. You can hit all the balls. Our par three course, the longest hole was 120, shortest hole 55 yards. I played that part three a dozen times a day with one club. That's why I was so good with a wedge. A dozen times a day. 
And the reason I was so good with the drivers, because I hit a, a thousand balls a day. Uh, they were metal-headed drivers and stuff, and but I, 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 I hit drivers. And then I qualified for the Open, as you well know, in 1966. Lee, just to stop for a second, there's all those stories about you playing various guys in Texas during this period of time when you were down before. there before this, sure. before you turned pro. Right. Is there a Ray Floyd story that comes up every so often? Well, that was that was after. In other words, when I went up and qualified, uh, uh, right before I went up and, and to qualify for the U.S. Open, uh, I was doing all, uh, it wasn't a hustle. It was, you know, hustling, in my opinion, to hustle someone is taking advantage of someone right. is when you lie about a handicap or you do whatever, okay? Uh, I considered myself a scratch player. Uh, people that I would play against and, and, and bet them, even strangers, naturally are not going to tell me what their honest handicap is. And in fact, they'd be a fool if they did. In other words, if a guy was a, a four handicap, he'd tell me he was a seven. And, and if he was a seven, he'd tell me he's a ten. And, and this is the way that they do it. And so, but what he didn't know is I played tennis in Park East every day, and I was a plus six. So I'm not telling him I'm a plus six. I'm telling him, though, if there's any hustle, that's, I wasn't telling him. And I did. I, I played every day. I played seven days a week because I didn't go to work till two. And I'd get up in the morning and I'd go play. And um, I, I played everyone. Well, it got to the point to where all the guys that hung out at Tennyson Park were uh, bookmakers and gamblers and what have you. We had a great crop of guys there. And so they would see me playing all these people and everything. And they had one little guy there that was a tremendous player. Every, every, every public course has one, a big gun, they call him. And they had a little hotshot guy that everybody would bet on. And he had won all these little tournaments uh, throughout the state, you know, these weekend jobs and stuff where you win a set of clubs or you, you win something. And this guy was named Dick Martin. He was about five foot six, and he was a heck of a player. And everybody was scared to death of him. And nobody would play him. And I was always trying to play him. And all the bookmakers said, you can't beat Little Dick. You cannot beat Little Dick. He says, he said, Little Dick will beat you. I said, I'd love to try him one time. I said, sometimes you, you guys want to bet something. I said, you let me know. I don't want to play him. So we got it on one day. We got it on. Tennis and East. Never forget this as long as I live. And Big Mickey and uh, <laughs> Ace Darnell and all the boys with all the money were coming out there and following this thing. And after 14 holes, he pulled up. He said, I had enough of this. And they were trying to get him to press. And he says, I've already pressed once. He says, I can't beat this guy. And he says, I'm not pressing again. And so I, I, I took care of him. And it was the only time we ever played together. And I, and I beat him. I, I, I knocked him out on 14. And um, so I got to the point to where I couldn't get any game. So a guy from El Paso called me up. And there was an old pro that played the senior tour, uh, and, 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 and he, was, he was out there playing uh, these big matches. The Cotton Farmers had a lot of money out there, and they were playing golf at Horizon Hills. And the guy says, and, and this guy's beating them up pretty good because these guys didn't know how to play golf, and this, this other guy did. And, and he was an older, an older gentleman, and his name was Fred Hawkins. 
And Fred Hawkins was playing the tour at the time. And he was just off the tour. He's just old enough to get off the tour, living in Chicago. So this guy by the name of Martin Letnich owned all the farms, you know, down in Yosleta. Yeah. And so he, he, he got a hold of a guy there that was there. And he said, does anybody know anyone that can play golf? He says that nobody knows. And this kid was from Fort Worth. He says, I know a little Mexican boy, he said, in Dallas that's working at a driving range. He says that there ain't nobody can beat him. So the guy says, you're joking. And this guy was, his dad was from Yugoslavia, Martin Letnich. And, the re, and, and, and how they settled there is they were on a train after World War II when they migrated over from, from the war here. And people on the train found out that they were from Yugoslavia and they kicked them off the train. And his dad went to work there on this farm and before you knew it, they owned the whole valley. And Martin Leonard, I just went to his funeral two years ago. He died 86 years old. He's the only guy that I ever had as a sponsor. He's the only guy that helped me. Only one. And he calls me up and he says, hey, Chico. He spoke Spanish better than any Mexican <laughs> I've ever known. Hey, Chico. He said, Martin Lednich here. I said, yes, sir. He said, I'm El Paso. Yes, sir. He said, I want you to come out here and play for me. I said, so I asked him, I said, well, I don't know what you mean. He said, we're playing out here. He said, we're playing a guy named Fred Hawkins. And he says, we can't beat him. He says, I want you to come in and play for me. And I said, yes, sir. He said, I'll send you a plane ticket. He says, and I'm going to give you $300. He says, to play three rounds of golf. I said, $300? I said, I'm not making $100 a week. He said, I'll give you $300. So I jumped on the plane. I go out there. I get off the plane. I got this. McGregor bag with my name on it. First thing he did is he took all the clubs out of his bag and he gave me that little green stick bag. Remember that little green That's stick absolutely. bag we used to use? So he gives me this bag. He says, no, Chico. He says, you can't use that bag there. I said, what do you mean I can't use that bag? He says, you can't use that bag there. He said, you, you're going to go with this bag. Okay. Well, Stylish Shoe Company is a guy named, named Frank Redmond was, was a guy with Stylish Shoe Company. We go out and I'm on the putting green the next day. Fred Hawkins is putting over there and a couple of other guys here, and we're going to, we're going to, uh, you know, we're going to lock horns at one o'clock. I don't even know this golf course. I drove around it and looked at it. Uh, but, and anyway, so he says, and Fred Hawkins, uh, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Frank Redmond went over to Fred Hawkins and he said, he says, Hawk, he says, who are you playing today? He said, I'm playing that little guy right over there. He said, which guy? He said, that little Mexican boy. He said, Frank says, I think I know him. <laughs> and, 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 and Fred Hawkins says, what do you mean you think you know him? He said, I think that's Lee Trevino from Dallas. He said, really? He said, yeah. He said, he said Frank says, you better watch it. He said, this guy can really play. Fred Hawkins says, if I never heard of him, he can't play. It's exactly what he said. And I went out there and I, and I clocked him. So we played again the next day, and I clocked him again at, uh, at, at another course. He didn't show up for the third match. He, he wouldn't play the third match. So I went back home. Martin Letnich called me in a month, and a friend of mine's named Gene Fisher out there. He was, he was a city champion. And so Gene Fisher wanted to try me. He's a pretty good player. One of my best friends. 
Gene Fisher. I, t I call him every Christmas morning. Ever since I left there, every Christmas morning, he gets a phone call from me. And that, that's, that's how close we are. So I go back out there, and I play with Gene Fisher, and I beat him. So Martin said to me, he said, hey, Chico, he says, what are you doing in Dallas? I said, I'm not doing anything. He said, you own a house or anything? I said, no. He said, bring your stuff. So he brought my stuff. We rented a little place there. And I ended up getting a job at Horizon Hills, opening at 5 in the morning. And then I'd get off at 10 so I could play with the gang in the afternoon. And that was it. And one day I was in the pro shop. And I was cleaning up the clubs and whatever. And God and behold, who walks through the front door? Big Mickey from Tennyson Park. He always had this high-pitched voice, you know. Hey, baby, how you doing? I said, uh. I said, Big Mickey, how are you? He said, I hear y'all playing out here for a lot of money. I said, nah. I said, we have a few matches here and there. Oh, no. He said, that's not what I heard. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, let me ask you something. He says, do you think if we brought a player out here to play you, he said, uh, these people would bet on you? I said, I don't know. I said, Martin Lenage is over playing gin. I said, let me go ask him. So Martin comes over to him and and he, he says, Mickey says, you guys, you think y'all want to bet some big bunny? He said, if we bring, if we bring a player in here? And, uh, and Martin says, yeah. He said, you, you bring him on. He said, who do you want to bring? He said, well, we're thinking about bringing Raymond Floyd. He said, bring him on, Chico. He said, we take him. Bring him on. So I'm in the pro shop. Never forget this as long as I live. And I'm in the pro shop. Our driveway was not paved. It was caliche, and you could hear it, you know, when the car drove up. There wasn't very many cars there because these guys, were, they worked. They had farms. They drove trucks and stuff. And all of a sudden, it was about 10 o'clock, and I hear this crackling of, of the driveway, and I looked out the window, and I saw this Cadillac. And we didn't see many Cadillacs in our, in our parking lot, right? We saw trucks with hay in the back. And this guy gets out, and Floyd, and he had these gorgeous tailor-made pants, you know, and the alligator shoes. And I took a cart. I met him out there. And he had a Wilson bag with a coverall on it. Must have weighed 200 pounds with all the <laughs> stuff he had in it. And I put it on the cart, and I took it into the locker room. And that was my job. I did the lock. I did. I worked everything. And I, Raymond sat in his chair, not too far away. He wanted a diet coke, so we got him one out of the bar. Want to know if anybody wanted to play gin? I said, no, there's nobody here yet. So the guy he was with was Ace 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 Darnell, uh, and Ace says, uh, "Hey, listen," he says, uh, "I'm going to go get a cart." He said, "So we can ride around and look at the golf course." And Raymond says, all right. He said, I'll sit right here. So Ace left, and I unzipped his bag over there, and I took all his shoes out and put them on the counter and took the bag out, you know, and put the cover all over there and everything. And, and Raymond says to me, he says, hey, he says, let me ask you a question. I said, yes, sir. He said, who am I playing today? And I said, me. He said, you? I said, yes, sir. He said, what do you do around here? I said, I do a little bit of everything. I said, I come and open in the morning, the pro shop. I said, get the carts out. 
I said, sometimes if something has to be done in the locker room, I do that. I said, we're just a little country club here, you know, an old country boys. And he says, really? I said, yeah. Huh. So the guy comes back to the door and he says, hey. He said, I got a cart. Let's go. He said, I'm not going out there. He says, you don't want to look the course? He said, hell no, I ain't looking at the golf course. He said, I'm playing the locker room attendant. He says exactly what he said. He said, I'm playing the locker room attendant. He said, I'm not going to go out there and, and look at no golf course. So we go out there and play, and I said, I can't remember exactly. It was either 64 or 65, and I, and I beat him. Not by much, and I beat him. He shot in the mid-60s also. And so he wanted to go another emergency nine, as most people do when you get beat. And he says, listen, we got enough daylight. He said, let's go play another nine, you know, because they all lost. And I said, Mr. Floyd, I said, I can't play anymore today. I said, I got to put the carts up. And he says, not only am I playing the locker man, he says, I'm playing the cart boy too. So he comes back the next day and I beat him again. And I shot mid-60s again. And then the last day, we both had eagle putts on the last hole, and we were dead even on par five. I had a 20-footer. He had a 15-footer. I missed mine. He made his, and he beats me one up. He takes the ball out of the hole, and I can't tell you in English or Spanish what he said, <laughs> but I can say he said, adios. <laughs> <laughs> and that was back in the Cadillac and yeah. gone. Yeah, and they, they all left. Yeah. Uh -huh. And, and Raymond and I are the best of friends today. We've been great friends ever since. And Raymond told them about me when he went back. He said, Raymond was only 21 years old when I played him. And he says, uh, he said, there's a little Mexican guy coming out here. He says, y'all going to have to make a little room for this guy. He said, this, this guy can, can play a little bit. And I've had numerous people come up to me to me to tell this story to them because they've heard it from Raymond and they've all said you know what it's dead on he said that's exactly how it happened I said it is said, you don't forget the truth how much longer after the Raymond Floyd situation did you get out there on the tour the next year okay. almost the next not quite the next I qualified for the open in 66 <laughs> I think I played Raymond maybe in 65 or somewhere in there and in 66, I qualified and played at Olympic in San okay. Francisco. Made the cut, finished 54th. And then I left, went back to my job. Uh, I, I went back to work. And, uh, and so um, I, I didn't pursue anything, you know, any game or anything. So all of a sudden, uh, I qualified again the next year for the U.S. Open, and I went to Balderstraw in New Jersey. And I finished fifth. And by finishing fifth, uh, I actually uh, got some invitations to play in other tournaments, which I did not know I had those. All of a sudden, I started getting all these invitations. I got invited to play in, in, in Chicago in the Western Open. I'll never forget it. So I says, you know what? I, I, I'm going to go try to qualify in Minnesota at Hazeltine. That was the first year they are playing Hazeltine. I said, I'm going to go qualify at Hazeltine. And if I can play there, I'll get a warm-up before I go to Chicago. So go up there. We're going to qualify. And that's when they had Monday, you know, Monday rabbits. And a tee-off, Hazeltine, was, was different to us. It was long. It was a mean golf course. Not today. 
standards. It's not, but it was mean. And I went out there and shot a cool 78. And I'm packing. We parked right across from the pro shop. There was nothing but fields out there. And I was packing my car to leave about 2 o'clock in the afternoon because I figured there was no way I was going to make, you know, I was going to qualify. What I didn't realize is they had 82 spots. And uh, we used to have a lot of spots on Monday. And they had 82 spots because they were only 60 uh, exempt. See, there's only 60 exempt players. So everybody else qualified. Now, I'm leaving. And Wade Cagle was one of our officials, passed away uh, a few years ago. And he had a nickname for me. He called me Pinto Bean. And he said, Pinto Bean, he said, um, where are you going? I said, where am I going? I said, I'm going to Chicago. I see you at the Western Open. He said, um, where'd you shoot? I said, I shot 78. He said, hell, you're leading. <laughs> <laughs> I said, what? He said, what, 78? He said, are you crazy? He said, there'll be some 83s qualify here. And they were. I mean, they, they qualified. There's so many. It was, it was un unbelievable how difficult it was. Uh, Lou Graham uh, won that tournament that year. Lou Graham won a, a big old mean golf course, and, and, and he was one of the shortest hitters, and he won the tournament. And so I went from there because the PGA owned the tour at that time. And the PGA owned it on the tour. See, the PGA didn't lose the tour till latter part of 1969. So they owned it. Their rule was that if, if, if you were a Class A professional, which I was, and you made the cut in a sponsored, co-sponsored tournament, you were automatically in the next tournament. So I made the cut there, so I go to Chicago. I made the cut there, I go to the Canadian Open at the Board of Trade. And then I made the cut there, I go to Hartford. I made the cut, that's where I met my wife, Claudia, right. at Hartford. And, and so um, and I made the cut there, I go to New York. Made the cut there. I go to. Uh, uh, I, I went to Philly, and I ended up. Last tournament was Hawaii. I played 16 tournaments in a row. 13, sorry, 13 tournaments in a row. To be Rookie of the Year and be voted for Rookie of the Year, you must participate in 16 tournaments. But the reason, but the, but because I made 13 so cuts, cuts in a row and everything, they said, "Hell no, we're going to give them to him." So they gave me Rookie of the Year honors. Let me tell you a little different about the money. I won $33,000 in those 13 tournaments. $33,000 I won in those three tournaments. So what do I do is I ended up finishing, I ended up finishing 47th on the money list, which gave me an exemption because I was in the top 60. That was in 1967. In 1968, I won the U.S. Open at, at uh, Oak Hill, in Rochester, New York. And at that time, until 1970, the rule was that if you won a PGA or a US Open before 1970, you got a lifetime exemption. I can go play now at 80. And you should. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I can't reach the fairway now. <laughs> you know, the courses are so long now, you can't reach the fairway. But it gave me a lifetime exemption is what I had. Yeah, and uh, so after winning the Open, and then I won. That the was Hawaiian your first Open. win. Was the first was the win Open. was the Hawaiian Open? I won twenty five thousand. That was the most money we, that that was the most money at the time in, in prize money. If you won a tournament on the regular tour, it was only eighteen thousand. 
Yeah. Most of the tournaments were 100,000. 18% went the first prize. Yeah, that's the way that they had it. Then they started going up a little bit, but but that was uh, that twenty five thousand was the biggest check that I won. Yeah, the most money I ever won, uh, as far as prize money is concerned, is a million dollars. But it wasn't in a tournament; it was a hole in one at, at Treetops in uh, in Michigan. Mm -hmm. I I got five hundred and uh, I gave St. Jude five hundred thousand. Yeah, yeah. Now you're you're out there on the tour. You're making more money than you ever thought was possible i'm sure as a mm, kid mm. i mean this is a big this is a big deal then comes 1971 mm -hmm. i mean you absolutely mm -hmm. tear the tour apart mm -hmm. i mean you've been winning up till then mm -hmm. but you were sports person of the year mm -hmm. you were sports illustrated athlete of the year abc sports person of the year i mean this that you were really on top of the world then yeah and you know what happened what everything happens for a reason and that's the kind of guy that I am I had forgotten just for a little while how I got there and I started uh, thinking that uh, you know cocky thinking that uh, you know this isn't going to go away man you got some talent you don't need to do nothing drinking a few many drinking a few coors here and a few coors there and everything and if you remember in 19 70 I did not qualify for the tournament of champions and that year is from April to April you see what I'm saying and, and from 1970 to 1971 April and April I didn't qualify for the tournament of champions so when they came here to La Costa in California to play the tournament of champions I I worked so hard to get back into this thing that I went to Tallahassee and played in a small tournament that was against it, co-sponsored by the tour, but I went to Tallahassee, and I win Tallahassee. And then, I don't have to tell you, I won, what, six or seven tournaments that year. Uh, my big thing was winning the Open. What else did I want? The God, Canadian, I, Open, Canadian and Open and the British and Open, the British all Open. in about four weeks. Four weeks. Yeah. I won the three majors in, in four weeks, and I won in St. Louis. I won in Memphis. Uh, and, and I'll tell you what the money was like. Uh, we, we, we actually did a a survey um, a sports guy did it uh, two years ago because of speech went in this all those tournaments remember speech won 11 million something about three years ago and the guy says you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna put the same amount of money on every tournament that you won in 71 and speech money that he won three years ago and I had won over a million, eleven million dollars. If my prize money would have been the same thing, but I didn't. I was I was player of the year that year, and I led the money, and I think it was like um, one hundred and seventy-three thousand or something. It wasn't much. Yeah, yeah. Along the way, too. I mean, a lot of people, and it happened with Tiger. In your era, a lot of people were afraid of Jack. I mean, Jack really yeah. had people. Hmm. You. You never backed down no. to anybody. And you never thought when you went out on a golf course that there wasn't anybody that you couldn't beat. No, I always played the golf course anyway. Uh, Jack Nicklaus was one of the greatest. Uh, he could analyze a golf course. Uh, he, he could look at a golf course, and he could play a practice round, and he could tell you within one stroke what was going to win that thing. I mean, he, he, he just knew it. He, he, that's the way he did it. In the, that's why he never panicked in, in in major championships, he never panicked. You know, he might be five shots back after the first round, and he'd always, he always, he knew they'd come back. He knew they'd come back. He knew somebody was going to shoot low 
but they'll come back. They'll come back. And, and, and this is exactly what he did. The reason I was pretty good, especially in the U.S. Open, and I was there all the time, is that I hit the ball extremely straight. I didn't hit it long, but I could keep it in the fairway. See, the, the thing about a U.S. Open, and, and you got to understand that, that the most pressure in the world in the U.S. Open is when you stand on that tee. And you know that rough is, is eight inches high. And those fairways are only 20 feet wide. And you know that if you miss that fairway, you're going to make a bogey or a double bogey. You're gonna, unless you, if you make par, you're going to have to wedge it up in one putt. And that's where it's at in a U.S. Open. Not so much today because the guys are hitting at 350. Back in our heyday, you got a 400-yard hole, 420-yard hole. Back in my heyday, they were hitting at 242, 250. So you still had quite a, quite a ways to get in there. Today, these guys are hitting wedges. It doesn't make any difference if the ball is eight inches down in the rough. They still get it out of there because they're closer to it. The arc of, of the swing, in other words, they're coming steeper into the ball. And, uh, and, and that makes a big difference. Makes a big difference. If you're flatter, you're a little guy, you got, you know, you, get, you, you got tall rough, you're going to catch that rough way before a tall guy is. Gary Player said this, and Gary Player was right. We used to always joke around that it was a small man's game because the, we were close to our work. <laughs> you understand we're closer to the ball so we can do this and Gary you know Gary Player is the greatest in the world and Gary Player says man he says let me tell you something man he says there will be someone come along like James LeBron James that's 6'8 that can putt that has feel finesse doesn't make any difference where he hits it because he's going to fly at 400 he says, then you're not going to be able to beat him. And Dustin Johnson is very close to that. And you believe that Dustin Johnson is, if everybody played their best out there on the tour today, can't touch him. he'd be the guy that wins. He can't touch him. He can't touch him. When he went to Butch, and he went to Butch Harmon, and Butch says, listen, why do you want to hook a ball? You're 6'4". Your swing speed's 118, 120. And you want to hook a ball? I says, as I told everybody, I says, you know, something's got to slow down for you to hook a ball. Now, people are probably listening to this radio for you. He says, what the heck is he talking about? If you draw a ball, something's got to slow down for you to roll those hands. As you're coming down, you've got to rotate your forearms and your hands. So what are you going to slow down to do that? The left shoulder? The right hip? What are you going to do? But if you want to fade the ball, the faster you go, the better you fade it. Think of that. Jack Nicklaus, everybody thinks Jack Nicklaus drew the ball. Jack Nicklaus faded the ball. He hit a power fade high and dropped it off. He will tell you, he said, I aimed in the middle of the rough and pulled the trigger. Middle of the rough on the left, pulled the trigger. That's exactly what he did. This is why when you see Jack playing, you will see that he spot hits. 
he'll pick a spot in front of the ball. You watch him when he's waggling, he'll look at the spot, look at the fairway, look at the spot, look at his ball, look at the spot, look at the fairway. He is club is square to target to this spot. And even though it might not look good to him, he in his mind knows that he's lined up because it's like a putt. He's got a spot in front of him. And he pulled the trigger. There was no better putter than Jack Nicklaus. But again, his technique is very unique. No one else has tech, his technique. I can't believe that, and, and even I, right here, right right here, uh, we, I played here one time, and John Mahaffey beat me. I was putting so bad, and I went in to Jack Nicklaus' style of putting, and I shot 16 under and finished second, and I never tried it again. <laughs> because I'm as dumb as everybody else. I mean, no one's copied this guy. But Jack Nicklaus is right-eyed. And he has to see the hole with his right eye. And this is why he watches, watches left hip is about 45-degree angle, open stance. And then he dips down from the right side. His forearm is parallel to the ground here. His right hand is very strong on the putter. But he doesn't move it. He just sets it there. His left elbow is out. And he puts with his left, with his right arm, forearm, he pumps it like a cylinder. And he never gets offline when he does it. He's made more putts on the last green that yeah. means something than anybody I've ever seen. Even more than Tiger. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Even, even you know, that, that, that means something, see. The thing with DJ is Butch told him, he says, well, you got to go to a fade. He says, you got a cup wrist. That's how I play. I play with a cup left wrist. DJ has a cup left wrist, but he was trying to draw the ball. Sometimes he'd get it way right. Sometimes he'd duck hook it. Because if you're going to draw the ball, when, you're, when your left wrist is bowed, that's got to come out of there. Now, if you're fading the ball and you bow the wrist, hell, that's what you're trying to do. You're actually trying to bowl this wrist on the way down for you to fade it, see. And he has all that speed, you see. Then he taught him how to hit a wedge. He's a bad wedge player, too. See, he taught him how to hit a wedge. Um, I, I, you know, they talk about Kepta. They're talking about how good he can play. I know he's a big, strong kid and the whole thing. Um, DJ's the – he's the stud, he's the baby. Guy. He's the guy. What would Jack do with – today's equipment i mean jack hit the ball 300 yards when you guys were playing <laughs> i mean now the equipment's so much better and you as you've mentioned to me the ball is really mm. the difference today mm. i mean jack could hit it with anybody with today's i mean at his age again with the guys today for sure couldn't mm. he? jack would be chipping the ball back <laughs> you've never seen anything like it. he had the fastest left shoulder you've ever seen in your life the, you know jack was an athlete they, people don't realize that. They, they, they call Baseball him, player. They called him yeah. Fat Jack. And, uh, he went to Ohio State to play basketball. I mean, he played right. baseball. He did everything. He was an athlete. And so uh, the thing about um, Jack could hit it 300 yards back then with a fade, with a K2 ball, with a persimmon head with 11 degrees on it, uh, extra stiff steel shaft that weighed 140, uh, you know, grams, uh, uh, you know, 42 and a half inch long. Um, uh, he could hit it. I mean, he could hit it uh, uh, nine miles. Jack would, there's no question in my mind right now 
that if Jack was playing in his A-Day today with this equipment, he'd be the longest out there. There would be nobody even touching, okay, as far as off the tee is concerned. Now, you can go up to older guys now. I, I averaged 242 in my heyday with, with that equipment, 242. Jack averaged 267, 270. That's what he averaged, okay? Freddie Couples averaged 258, 260. Freddie Couples last year on the senior tour averaged 292. Now, Freddie Couples is 57 years old. And when he was 32 years old, he was hitting the ball 30 yards shorter than he is now. Now, Marty, there's a lot of things that go into this in the equation of the ball, of the, them hitting it that far, okay? And people have, people has not, they've not dissected this thing. They just talk about, oh, the ball, oh, the ball. Well, let me tell you something. Somebody's got to hit this ball. This <laughs> ball's not moving by itself. <laughs> You understand what I'm saying? And they say, oh, it's the ball. Well, let me tell you real quick where this ball is going at 300 yards compared to what it did 30 years ago. First of all, the ball is harder. It is harder. It's not as soft as it used to be. So the ball won't spin as much. Okay? So it, 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 it's a much. When is the last time? Did you find a golf ball or seen a ball with a cut? You've not seen a golf ball with a cut, okay? So that tells you it's harder. So it's going to go farther, okay? The reason they made this ball like that is because titanium drivers. If you hit one of those balls today with a wooden club, it wouldn't go anywhere. It just won't. You understand? It, it, the, 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 the wood, it might explode on you. Okay, <laughs> so here... Here, when you dissect the distance of where it's coming from, okay? Number one, the ball goes farther. Less spin on it. It's harder, okay? That's number one. So you got to put eight, ten yards on that. That's, that's what I'm talking about. The driver is a bigger head, more confident. It's now titanium, whatever you got. They've been able to fix uh, to put the weights in spots to where people don't have to worry about slicing or hooking. You can just swing at it if you put the weight in the right spot. That's added 10 yards. The shaft. Nobody could play with a 45-inch club because the head would be too heavy. Okay? So what's happened? The shaft's gone from 140 grams to 63, 48, uh, you know, 60 grams. There's 28 grams in an ounce. So here's what's gone. This is what's happened to you. So the shaft now, the guy, the thing's longer. It's lighter. Okay, if you got a lighter head and you got a D3 head weight, okay, you've got, it's like driving a nail with a sledgehammer or, or, or a tech hammer. You got more mass because the head's heavier because you've taken all the weight out of the shaft. Now the shaft's 45 inches. You're going to get a little bit more of a hit on it, okay? That's the shaft is added another 10. Now, now we're up to 30, okay? The athlete, better shape, taller, stronger, faster. You got to add another 10. That's 40. 
Okay? Now, here's the one that was the best of all. Guess what it is? It's the more, the equipment that takes care of the golf course. It's magnificent. The fairways are smoother. They're faster. The ball rolls farther. I mean, come on. The more has added another 10 yards. So you got 50. So the guy that's hitting it 320, he's only hitting it 270. Nobody takes that into the equation. Absolutely. But mm -hmm. aren't you obsoleting some of these golf courses? I mean, I want more distance. The weekend guy, the guy that plays every day at his club wants more distance. But for the pros, do you advocate that they want to bring back these guys so they can't hit the ball so far because now you're playing golf courses that have to be 7,500 yards before they can be championship golf courses. I, the, the, here, here's the whole problem. The whole problem is people are proud of their golf course. And, uh, uh, you know, they, they, they bring these pros in there and they shoot 25 under par and then the members say, man, this course is not that easy. Uh, you, you can't go by that. You can't go by that. because, right. and, and, and you can't start making golf courses for the pros. You can't do that. If you're, going, if you, if you're worried about what the pro is doing, then the, the professional should play with different equipment than the amateur. And that won't work either, simply because, I mean, how many amateurs are out there trying to buy what the pros are using and they can't use what they got? I mean, that's the whole thing. You know, I've always been a big thing about wedges because I'm a mechanic with wedges. And guys are buying 60-degree wedges, 62-degree wedges, and I tell them, I says, man, you can't even use a 56 yet. Well, what are you going to do with a 60? And most people that use a 60-degree wedge are always short with it simply because it has four degrees more aloft on it, and they won't swing any harder than they would that 56 because that's in, that's, I mean, that is registered in their mind how hard to swing this wedge. Well, it's not going to go anywhere because it's here. You understand? Now, if they turn the 60 here, it would if they don't take too deep a divot because when they go here, what happens? The bounce goes negative. And when the bounce goes negative, it's going to go deeper in the ground. We talk about Jack. We talk about how the equipment's gotten better, the agronomy, the ball. But back in those days, too, and, and you bring the same thing to the game, Arnie was just a different guy. He oh, brought yeah. notoriety to the game. Yeah. He was an ambassador like you he was are. The best. He was the best. He was... Nobody close. Yeah. Nobody close. Um, Dalai Lama, maybe? <laughs> IT. Yeah. I was around Arnie a lot. And, there's, and, and I'm a short fuse guy anyway. You understand? And a lot of things bother me, and I don't, mean, and I don't mind voicing my opinion. Uh, but... Arnie voiced his opinion, but it was always uh, good. You understand? Nothing was ever wrong with him. Never saw him turn anybody down for anything. Autographs, interviews, pictures. He was just absolutely, he was the most perfect gentleman that I've ever been around. Yeah, I, I mean, he was amazing. His dad must have been amazing, yeah. Yeah, I, the deacon. He, the deacon must yeah. have been tough as a boot. He was tough as a boot. He was handicapped, as you well know, his dad. And I think Arnie really appreciated what he got out of life by looking at his dad and as hard as he worked. His dad 
took over Latrobe. He was the green superintendent. He mowed the fairways, the greens, and Arnie bought that golf course and gave it to him. I'll never forget that. I've been there. I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, everybody we talk to about their stories, you included, and then you bring it up with Arnie, it starts with the work ethic. That's right. I mean, if you're going to be good at anything. You got to go. Got to go. Yeah. You got to do it. You got to do it. And, and, and also, the big thing, let me tell you about young people and golf, okay? And, and I, our golf director and I were talking about this today, and I was hitting wedge shots. I don't carry a 52 wedge. I don't carry a, a, an A wedge. I carry a 56 and a 60. And I used to never carry a 60, but I carry it now because of all the, you know, the green, the false fronts and stuff where the ball falls way down in the holes. You got to chip it up soft. Because I never used anything but a 56. Never used a 52, 54, uh, or an A wedge. And, and my pitching wedge is, is 46 to 45, to, you know, on the, on the loft. So the pro was asking me, I was hitting these little monkey shots out there with a little fade about 80 yards with his pitching wedge. And he says, what club is that? I said, it's a pitching wedge. He said, a pitching wedge? I said, yeah. I said, I don't have anything else. He said, you don't have an A wedge? I said, nope. 52? Nope. 54? Nope. I said, I'll go 56, 60 pitching. He said, man, really? I said, yeah. He said, you got 11 degrees, he says, in between your pitching wedge and your sand wedge. I said, yep. And I hit all these little shots for him. You know, like I like to do. I mean, that's what I like to do. And I hit all these little shots for him, and I said, let me tell you something, okay? And I said, my son is as guilty as everybody else, and my son's getting better at it. I said, they come out here, and they pound balls for six hours a day. They never hit one, one working shot. I said, they pound it. Well, if you hit five balls with a nine iron, and say I hit five balls with a nine and they go 130 yards. That's how they're going to go. <laughs> there ain't no sense in me hitting another 100. What the hell am I hitting another 100 for? You know, they're only going to go 130. But can you hit that nine iron and curve it around a tree 85 yards, 100 yards, 105 yards? Can you go low and hook it around the limbs and go 90 yards? That's the shots when they get on the driving range, they should be practicing. You understand? You've got to be a mechanic if you want to play. Unless you're six foot five and can hit it 350, if you're 5'8, five 5'7, five you better know something. I tell my son all the time, I said, Son, you see these? It's like a fist fight. I said, It's like this right here. I said, If. I can whoop a guy six foot tall. I'm five eight. If I'm five seven, because I know a lot. I said I've been trained to do this, but if I run into a guy that's six foot that knows as much as I do, he's gonna beat the hell out of me. Right. I, and this is what's gonna happen. I said the only way you're gonna beat these big guys that hit it a long way is you gotta know more than they do. I do love to teach. I do love to teach. Yeah, well, I, I know, and and yeah. and you'll do it at the coffee table in the morning when we're sitting there having coffee. And I do it. Do we give you, Do you know that last night? I, I, my wife, you know, my wife was hitting the ball better at home than she was when I got here because I've changed everything, you know, trying to get her to improve a bit. And, and so today, so last night I'm, I'm laying in bed and I'm saying, 
damn, I got to figure this out. And I said, you know what? She's got her hands too high. That's what it is. Her hands are up here. I got to get her hands down low so, so she can come up out of it, you know, and, and hold the angle longer. Man, she striped it today. She hit it so good. And I said, you know what? I'm tired of teaching. Just put your hands low and hit the damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, Lee, we're going to take a short break and have a message from Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers. You're buying more than a diamond ring or you're buying more than a watch when you come to Leeds & Son. You're buying integrity. You're buying value. You're buying the best products in the world brought to the Coachella Valley with great care. Leeds & Son, the Coachella Valley's jewelry experts. And now back with Lee Trevino. Lee, we enjoy having you here at Bighorn so Thanks. much. Oh, how, yeah. how did that come about, your relationship with R.D. and what brought you here to Bighorn? Because oh. you are a part of our community. Oh, yeah. This guy is... Uh, he, he is unbelievable. Uh, I mean, he's the most, un I tell people every day about him. Uh, he wrote a book called about only worry about tomorrow. I've read that book three times. If I've read it once, I can't put it down. And people that are listening right now, if they have not read this book and you got a kid that's in business or you got a kid that's going to school and is going to go to a tech business course, you need to get this book. R.D. Hubbard, only worry about tomorrow. And I'll tell you something, it, and, and it tells you all about this guy. I first met R.D. Hubbard in Kansas when he had the Coors Distributorship. And we went there to play an exhibition in Wichita. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, Mickey Mantle may have been with us. I'm not sure, but I think he was. And we went there to raise money for funds and, and, and for something. And R.D. was just a sweetheart. And from there, as you well know, he went into the glass business, made a tremendous amount of money. But, but he's a visionary when it comes to, to what he did here. He did something here that's very difficult to do. And as I told people, he's the czar here. He's the one that runs it. And I tell people all the time, I says, they said, how is it doing? I said, have you ever heard of a golf course that has trouble, that has a czar? They all are very successful because there's no committees. I said, nobody can do anything without him. And I said, this is, this is how it worked. So after he did all that, I know about Hollywood Park and, and everything that he had. And Colbert was in with him. I knew it with Colbert when we were in Vegas and they were had all the golf courses i think they had 20 or 28 mm -hmm. 26 golf courses together that they were managing and then when they got this one what 94 i can't believe it 93 94 i don't remember who it was when they got it and westinghouse had actually developed this this big one they had the course up at the top which i think uh, jones maybe right. designed that and then they decided to um, put in all the infrastructure in and then and then um, uh, built the, the canyon down below, which I think is just one of the most gorgeous golf courses I've ever played. I love that thing. I can play it all day long. And, and you know, we came in here, and then he put on the, the shootout. You know, I remember playing Tiger and, and, and Nicholas here with Sergio Garcia, uh, and it was just wonderful. And um, Hubbard thinks about people what they like to have these two golf courses these two driving ranges 
our little market that we have. I tell people we have a grocery store on site. They said, you got a what? I said, we have a grocery store. But then when I tell them we have a jewelry store in the pro shop, they go crazy. <laughs> they said, you have a jewelry store in the pro shop? I said, we do. We sell watches. We sell rings, earrings, whatever you want. And I said, uh, and I said, and we also have our own private steakhouse. We have a smaller clubhouse. I told them, I said, down at the canyons where you can get lunch or whatever you want. I said, the staff is superb. You cannot get a staff any better than that. Then all of a sudden, three years ago, four years ago, RD got the bright idea that this clubhouse wasn't sufficient for his membership. And he built something here that if people, I don't care where they're at listening to this, if you make a trip anywhere in the Palm Springs or Palm Desert or Indio, you've got to drive up here to see this place. This clubhouse is one of the most gorgeous clubhouses I have ever seen. And I've traveled a little bit and I've seen some clubhouses. And it's so functional, you know, the way that he put this thing together. Um, he asked me to come and, and, and be a member here. And he gave my family, they can come here. We come here twice, three times a year. Uh, every November, we have a huge opening to welcome everybody back uh, uh, from, uh, from the summertime. Generally around November the 10th, 12th, we have, last year we had over 1,000 people here at dinner. Then the great thing is that we bring in 20 senior players. We have the biggest pro-am you've ever seen in your life. Raise a tremendous amount of money. And we raise funds for our staff because uh, they've been off all summer and they get a little behind on payments on cars or homes or college or whatever, which is fantastic. Uh, and, then, and then the membership have all kinds of things that they do all year. And then, um, you know, it uh, starts kind of gearing down about the 15th of May. It starts gearing down a little bit and we start it all over. The big problem is we enjoy ourselves so much that it goes too fast. Absolutely. It goes too fast. That's the problem. Before you know it, it's, we're going to be going back home again, and then here we come in November again, and there it goes again. You know? And it actually, and the older you get, the faster it goes. Yeah, that's the problem. This time has been so important for me and for you getting together with you. Two questions I have before we finish. Number one, Who's been the most influential people in your life or person? Well, I, I looked up, uh, I, I, loved, I loved Mr. Hogan because I, I, I studied him a little bit and his work ethics is, is what really put me over the side for him. I mean, he practiced and practiced and practiced uh, uh, and and he was not a very good player until after the war. And the reason for it is because he had the, what we call the Texas grip. He was a real strong gripper. And then I think it was Henry Pickard or one of them that put his hands on there the way they're supposed to be and told him to go home and practice like that, and then he would do okay. And uh, I, I, I kind of watched him. I wanted to be a lot like him. Uh, he, was, uh, he was a big influence as far as, as I was concerned. Plus... The thing about it is after I learned about him in the middle 60s, uh, Mr. Hogan, believe it or not, would have his, his national salesman, every time he built a golf, an iron or he put a ball out, 
he would make the guy take it over to Dallas, and he would, he, you know, Mr. Hogan, Mr. Hogan never called anyone by their name. Yeah, you can never find anyone that said he called me by my name. He called you fella, uh, and that's that was it. Hey, fella, how you doing? You know, I guess that's, you don't have to remember anyone's name if you do that, but he never called anybody. But he called me the little Mexican guy in Dallas, <laughs> and he would send over clubs and balls. And he, the salesman, would take me to the practice tee and make me hit him. And I'd hit his irons into the golf ball. And then I'd give him feedback, and he'd take it back. And Mr. Hogan says, I don't know if these clubs are that good or not. Take them over to the little Mexican guy in Dallas and let him hit them. That's a pretty good compliment. That is. That That's is a great compliment. From, yeah. from Ben Hogan. Yeah. One other question. What, would, what advice would you give today a 20-year-old Lee Torino? Oh, my God. Well, today's different. Uh, today's a big difference now. Big difference now. Uh, there's a, there's a, you, you have to have something to fall back on. I actually think, Marty, the only reason that I made it is I had no other place to go. I had nothing to fall back on. I had already been to where I had to fall back on, and I didn't want to go back there. And that was building golf courses and working, you know, which is nothing wrong with it. I'm not saying but that's the only place I had to go. Kids today have to understand that they have to get an education to where they can get a job and they know they can get a job. So it's going to have to be in the business section, medical section, petroleum. You understand? I have a friend of mine that went to school with my son. He's 26 years old. Lives in Houston, went to Texas University, and he majored in petroleum engineering. At this moment that we speak, he runs a rig in middle of Odessa at the age of 26. So that's what, golf's going to be here forever. Get your business done first and always have something to, got a bridge. Got to have a bridge, you understand? And, and, and do something. That's why my son's got a business degree. And I told him, I said, you want to play golf? I'll give you three years. I'll give you a three-year window. He'll, he'll find his niche. He's got the education. He's still, he's still got the money and the funds. He can go back if he wants to. It's still there, you know, because I put it there when he was born. Um, he and my daughter, they both can go back. But I told my son, I said, you'll be just fine. You got a business degree from Southern Cal. And I said, um, you can uh, go ahead and chase your dream, son. I got your back. You know, yeah. I love it. I love, the, I love young people. I love young people simply because I've been there. It's pretty difficult for a guy that comes out of Harvard, that dad was a, was a multimillionaire, and then he's talking to a bunch of kids and he's trying to tell them what they got to do. You see what I'm saying? It, it's hard. Kids, but, but me, I, I, I told them, you know, they have, we have a big, big dropout rate in Dallas. I told the Dallas school board, I said, if you want somebody to talk to these kids that are, you know, that they want to, I'll go talk to them. Never call me one. Mm. Mm. I never got it. Ne never, never what a resource it. that they're wasting. Huh? It's a resource that they're wasting. Yeah. I have a message, too, to everybody who is listening to this as we wrap it up. 
this is a man who uh, cares about people, and he's so accessible. When he's here at Bighorn, he is totally accessible, and I suggest to you that if you see Lee around, please come up, say hello, because you will be better for the experience that you have after talking to him. Uh, we do it at 7 o'clock in the morning at the coffee table, <laughs> but wherever else you might see him. Lee, thank you so much ah, thank for you, this. Buddy. Okay, God bless appreciate you. it. Hey, come on out and see us.